We'll go ahead and get started. God, we do pray for Marshall that he would start to feel better and uh, just that you would give him peace and comfort and help him to, uh, to mellow down a little bit. Um, God, we thank you for your word. Thank you that your word is truth. Thank you that you have uh, given us your word and preserved it for us. And we pray that you would give us the ability to correctly divide your word, that we would know how to handle your word and um, that we would be even more enriched by your your words, by your truth, as we look into it tonight and we consider how it is that we ought to look into it. And of course, we pray that your name would be lifted up and that you would be glorified in this place in our hearts and uh, that we wouldn't detract from, from you and your glory in any way. We pray these things in your name. Amen. Amen. All right. So let's do a little bit of recap. Over the last few weeks, we've been considering how it is that we ought to look at the Bible and what it is that the Bible does for us, what it is that the Bible is. Um, we've considered how the Bible is, has absolute authority, that it is, in fact, the Word of God. It is given to us by God, 2 Timothy 3.16, that all Scripture is God-breathed. He literally breathed it out, and we have it um, with us today because it came from on high, and we should treat it as divine, realizing that it is, in fact, from God. We talked about the clarity of Scripture, the fact that, uh, once again, it's, it's the Word of God, and He has given it to us knowing exactly how He wanted it to be received, um, we should realize that it can be understood. It was meant to be understood by the original audience. It is meant and intended to be understood by us today. And if at any point in our, our Bible study, in our Bible reading, we find ourselves to lack some kind of understanding, we have to realize that that's a result of our own sinful depravity, that our minds are fallen, and we should in no way attribute that to God and think that he was in any way um, fallen himself in, in giving his word, that he has given us anything that is less than perfect, less than what he meant to give us. We talked about the, the harmony of scripture, the fact that uh, it is 100% cohesive, that it works together at, at all points, that um, rather than contradicting, we often hear people claim that the Bible is contradictory. Um, it's absolutely not. In fact, it is entirely harmonious. It works together fluidly throughout all uh, 66 books of the Bible. And then last week we talked about the simplicity of the Bible, that though it is divinely authored, though it is authoritative, it is written by men. Because it's written by men, it is um, something that we need to consider carefully. It's something that we need to um, dissect and look at, we should look at the Bible just like any other book while simultaneously realizing that it is absolutely unique. It is absolutely holy um, and uh, set apart and we'll never fully be able to understand all the, the truths that lie within it. We'll never be able to fully um, apprehend who God is, but we should confront it just like we do any other book, realizing that uh, once again, God has spoken with the intent of being understood. That's how he has communicated to us. And um, we, we spent some time considering the, um, these two authors of the Bible, the divine author and the human author, and how they work together in complete harmony, how they are um, speaking with one voice, really. And uh, because of that, we shouldn't be seeking to add or, or change the words of God in any way. We need to consider them uh, literally. We don't want to impose our own understanding on the text, uh, which is very common for people to do, to, to spiritualize the text, to make it say um, something deeper. We have this desire to go beyond just the, the black words on a white page and make it say something special and unique to us. And when we do that, we are entering dangerous territory, for sure. Um, we talked about, um, along with spiritualizing it, um, I guess similar to spiritualizing it, is our temptation to allegorize a text, to, to change the meaning, to make it say something that isn't quite there. Um, 
to perhaps um, better fit our own pre-understanding, to better fit our own mold of what it is that we think the Bible ought to say or what it is that we already think the Bible says. We need to stick with the text and uh, what the text says without adding to the text. Uh, we discussed how there is only one interpretation. Any given text that we look at, there's going to be one meaning for that text, uh, one perfect interpretation, while there are going to be many different applications, many ways that we can take and implement the truths in that text or, or practice the, uh, the revelation of that text, but there's only one uh, interpretation of the text. Uh, William Tyndale said that scripture has but one sense, which is the literal sense. Again, we don't want to be trying to uh, change the words of God uh, out of anybody's words that we could take and twist. We definitely don't want to do that with Almighty God, right? Uh, we need to understand that one literal uh, interpretation of the text. Again, while there are many other applications. And while doing that, we do recognize that just because there's one interpretation of the text, that doesn't mean that everybody's going to agree on what that one interpretation is. We're going to have different ideas of uh, what it means. We're going to have different understandings. That doesn't change the fact that there is only one interpretation. Uh, I, have to, I have to tell you a story. I was working today, driving my truck. I drive a, a semi-truck, and I haven't told my wife this yet. I'm going to get in trouble. But <laughs> I was driving down, or I was driving up, I guess, I-15, and we were in gridlock traffic, and some dude rear-ended me. And when I was able to get out, I went back and checked on things to see how it was. And uh, I looked and uh, talked to him, addressed him, and I said, you know, I don't, I don't see any damage. I'm completely fine with just driving off and not reporting this if you're okay with that. And he got this really hopeful look on his face. And he said, there's no damage to my car. I said, no, there's no damage to my truck. Your car is jacked up. It's, uh, he, had, he had both headlights out. He had smoke coming up from his uh, engine. Uh, so he knew this ahead of time, that there was damage to his, to his car. <laughs> I don't know what he was thinking. Um, but he understood something different from what I was trying to communicate, right? I said, yeah, there's no damage, talking about my truck, because he's the one who reared me. I didn't want to pursue anything else. Um, and he got hopeful, and he thought, uh, well, maybe there's... There's a chance, but no, his, his car was pretty, pretty messed up. Um, so there's one interpretation, many applications. We're not always going to know that one interpretation, but that's our goal. That's our desire in Bible study is to seek to understand God's word as he's revealed it to us. Um, also last week, we talked about how we need to approach the Bible contextually, looking at what the, the verse says and working our way out from there, right? In concentric circles, look at the verse, look at the surrounding verses, a paragraph, and that's how we develop our, our theology, by looking at those verses and working out. Um, it's understanding the whole as being comprised of the different parts. Perhaps you guys have heard the, the phrase, um, the missing the forest for the trees. Um, that's kind of like, let's zoom out and, and take a look at the bigger picture. Well, we have to realize that the forest is actually made up of the trees, right? The the forest gets its definition. It is defined by the trees, whereas the trees aren't um, defined by the fact that they are a part of the forest. So we have to start small and work our way out, um, get bigger as we um, continue to analyze the, the verse and the surrounding verses. And it's not bad for us to take those verses and to, um, to compile them or to organize them in a systematic fashion to look at all the different verses that have to do with um, trees. We're just talking about trees. You make a, a systematic theology on trees. And that's what Jeremy's doing in the Theology 101 class is going through systematically and looking at uh, different individual verses that have to do with bibliology or theology proper or Christology and considering them all together. But that... Um, that end result isn't really going to impact the individual verses. And we definitely don't want to take our or any system of theology and impose that upon Scripture. We want to start with the verse and develop our theology from the text rather than taking our theology into the text. Um, any questions or comments, thoughts on what we've been over so far before we move on to 
how we should understand the Bible grammatically, historically. All right. Well, let's do that then. So um, we should, again, last week we looked at how we should understand the Bible literally and contextually. Um, we need to also understand the Bible grammatically. And that's not a fun word that we really enjoy and is really going to wake us up on a Wednesday night after work. But <clears throat> Jeremy's, Jeremy's an odd duck. He doesn't count. So <laughs> that is a, a little bit different. Uh, you married an English major, so. And I, too, have an English degree, little known fact. Yeah. Is it a major? Is it? Uh, <laughs> a lot more than I have. All right. So when we talk about understanding the Bible grammatically, we have to understand that words have meaning, right? We talked about this a little bit last week. This is so basic and foundational that um, I'm able to talk and communicate with you right now because words have meaning. Uh, we teach our kids from a very young age that words have meaning. Um, and once again, we are dealing with not just any words, but divinely inspired words given to us by God. Uh, God communicated to us using words so that we could understand. I think he knows what he's doing. Uh, we need to go and we need to understand these words. And we live in a, a culture that is completely oblivious of this fact, either oblivious or... Uh, all too aware, because oftentimes they will take and I think intentionally twist and redefine words and shape words to their own uh, benefit, uh, just completely dismissing truth. Uh, what is truth anymore, right? Um, or what is good or bad or uh, a man or a woman or a boy or a girl? Um, does it even mean anything to be called racist anymore? Because people have just taken words and they've completely redefined the, the dictionary. So words have meaning. We have to hold on to that. We need to go into the Word of God and seek to understand the, the inspired words of Holy Scripture. And we believe here in what is called uh, verbal plenary inspiration. Those are fun words that, again, should keep you awake. Verbal plenary inspiration. And if I misspell stuff, you can just keep that to yourself because I do that all the time and it doesn't bother me. All right, so inspiration. <laughs> uh, this is just talking about the fact that God is the one who's given us this book, right? Uh, we can associate that pretty closely with authority, um, that it comes from the mouth of God. Verbal, that's speaking about the fact that... Um, we're, we're talking about the words of God, not just the thoughts of God, not just that God has placed within human authors some thought and he's given them uh, complete autonomy to go off and, and do whatever you will with this thought. No, he has inspired the individual words and not just the words, but even the, uh, the parts of the word God has inspired. Plenary uh, is talking about um, all or, or every word is inspired. So... The words are inspired, and every part of the words, all of the words are inspired. Again, this is um, understanding that this is in the original manuscripts and the, the autographs uh, written in, in Greek and Hebrew. God has inspired those, and uh, faithful men and, and women have gone before us and using a grammatical approach to interpretation. They have taken these, um, we have thousands of copies made from these original autographs and manuscripts and uh, compared them with each other to seek to give us a, a good understanding in our, our English Bibles of what it is that uh, we have preserved for us from God. So again, we believe in verbal plenary inspiration of Scripture. And um, this is that all the parts are equally divine. So every word and every word form and also the, the word placement, all these things are vital and important, and I think given to us and preserved for us by God so we can understand what it is that he has given to us. God isn't sloppy. He's not messy and haphazard in the way that he has revealed his truth to us. He's very intentional and deliberate in how it is that he has delivered his word to us, and we need to approach his text with that understanding. Uh, this verbal concept of verbal plenary inspiration 
applies again to the original manuscripts and we seek to understand it through our, our human, our human, our, yeah, our human minds and our English texts. Um, this is the, the same kind of understanding that we see that the authors in, of scripture had themselves. They understood that God had spoken to them using words and these words were um, very specific and very unique. Uh, all throughout the Bible, we can see numerous examples of different uh, instructions or lists or commands or prohibitions that God has given to people. And they should be understood just as he gave them to them, not with some sort of variation or deviation. Um, perhaps you guys remember Uzzah, the dude who reached out and tried to study the ark so he wouldn't fall and touch the ground. Uh, he got struck dead immediately because he didn't listen to the very specific instructions that God had given to him. Uh, same thing with Moses. Remember the, uh, the first time God told him to, to get water from the rock, he told him to hit it. The second time he told him to speak to the rock and Moses didn't listen to that instruction. He wasn't paying attention to the words that God had given to him. And because of that, he was not permitted to go into the promised land. That was a pretty big consequence for um, just one word difference, right? He just hit the rock instead of spoke to the rock. I think grammar matters a little bit. Um, let's turn to Galatians. Galatians chapter 3. And here we see uh, Paul's understanding of, of grammar and the importance that Paul places upon grammar. If I can get there without slipping. All right, Galatians chapter 3 and verse 16 says, Now the promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed, which he does not say, and to seeds, as referring to many, but rather to one, and to your seed, that is, Christ. And so we see the, the specificity with which um, Paul is going back and understanding Moses. It says that these promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed, singular. Um, it's very specific, and we can look again at the, the tense in the Greek to see that this word, sperm, spermatid, um, is, it's a noun. It's the, in the dative, neuter, and this is singular, just one seed. Very specific word that um, Paul read in the, the Hebrew, and now he's translating over the Greek, and he uses the, the ending very specifically. And he says that it is not spermasin, which is in plural. So it's spermatid, not spermasitin, or spermasin. <laughs> um, so he's saying that he can go back and he can understand what it is that God was trying to say, not just with the specific word that he chose, but with the specific um, part of the word that he chose, the, the ending of the word. Um, Paul understood this to be specific, that it was down to the word form, and he himself communicated this specifically, and then he went on to, to highlight the importance and the implications of this promise being made uh, to the seed, not to seeds, because of his understanding of grammar. Again, we see the, um, the high value that he places on the Word of God. Uh, could I get somebody to look up Matthew 5.18? Who's got Matthew 5.18 for us? All right. <laughs> go ahead. Whoever's got it first, go for it. All right, that was Jesus' understanding that not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen, right? Every jot and every tittle is going to be accomplished because God has given his word with the intent and the, the purpose of it being accomplished, of preserving it. Um, at the very end of your Bibles, Revelation 22, 18, 19, talks about adding to the word. It says, if anybody adds to the words of this book, to him will be added all the, the plagues and diseases described in this book. If anybody takes away from the words of this book, then his name will be taken out of the Lamb's Book of Life because words are important, because 
the authors of Scripture understood the importance of grammar. Now, uh, looking at our use of grammar and how it is that we utilize grammar, um, we recognize that there are uh, different types of literature. We talked about this a little bit last week, how um, there is uh, historic narrative versus um, uh, discourse and even satire in the Bible. What are the, the main categories that we place the, the different books of our Bible into? The first five books of the Bible, what would we call that? The Pentateuch or the law, right? Yeah, and then historical books, good. What else we have? We have the law in the first and historical. What did you say, Sandra? Prophecy. Prophecy, good. Poetry. <laughs> yep, poetry or, or wisdom literature. What about the New Testament? What do we find in the New Testament? Gospels. Yeah, the Gospels and yeah, Acts we see in church history. And then after that, what are all the, the other little ones? The epistles. The epistles or letters, right? So these are uh, different types of literature, different way that, ways that we can uh, take and um, kind of subdivide our, our Bibles. And which ones should we understand and interpret literally? All of them. Good job. Not just a subsection of those, right? All of Scripture needs to be understood and interpreted literally. Yes, there is. Good. Um, and oftentimes, people will take prophetic literature or uh, apocalyptic literature, and they'll say, well, we need to have a completely different hermeneutic when we approach this type of literature. We need to um, look at it more allegorically, or we need to spiritualize this literature because it's somehow in a, a different class. Um, not so. We should still approach it literally. Yes? just want to point out that apocalyptic is a made-up label. That's, a, that's another thing just to remember that it, it was... It only means revelation, basically. That's all everything ever means when we mm -hmm. say it. And that was written to seven churches, and it was prophetic. Yep. So it's like an epistle with prophecy in it. It's apocalyptic literature just made up. Yeah. Yep. Good. Um, I have a quote here for, for you, and I want you to analyze it for me and tell me what's wrong with it. It's from Anthony Hokuma, and he says, talking about this, what he would call apocalyptic literature. He says, in a book where almost all the numbers seem to have symbolic values, seven seals, trumpets, bowls, etc., 144,000 Israelites, 42 months, 1,260 days, three and a half years, should not 1,000 years indicate a long period of time rather than a number of calendar years? That makes sense, doesn't it? No? <laughs> he was justifying all millennialism by saying all the numbers are just symbolic. Uh, yeah. His, his very premise he was faulted from the start. He says, because all these other numbers in Revelation are allegorical, these, and he lists a ton of them because there are a ton of numbers in Revelation, the seven years and uh, 1,260 days, three and a half years. All those are allegorical, so we should understand this one as being allegorical too. Um, it's just starting with a, a false premise and course you're going to end up with a, a very poor conclusion um, and we as we mentioned last week we all have this tendency and this problem we need to check our presuppositions um, and realize how they can affect our understanding of the bible again that's why we start with the text not starting with the system bringing that to the text um, there are going to be some presuppositions i suppose that we need to to hold on to that's why we need to check our presuppositions and not completely abandon them. Um, at my house, it's not the, the kind of house where we take off our shoes when we come into the house. And there are some nice fancy houses or I guess nice fancy people that have that rule. I'm, I'm not one of them. But if I'm you know playing outside in the mud or walking through my yard and my dogs leave me some landmines, I'm gonna check my feet before I come in and. Uh, take them off if I need to, or rinse them off. We need to do the same thing with our presuppositions. We need to check them without abandoning them. And some of our presuppositions as dispensationalists um, that we especially need to check, and we'll get into throughout the rest of the series, is a distinction between Israel and church. 
we can take that understanding into a text sometimes and we could come out with the, the wrong understanding because we walked into it with the presupposition or um, one that we might get caught up on often is uh, cessationalism. The fact that uh, we don't believe in the radical gifts of the Holy Spirit. Well, if we take that preconceived understanding into a text, that could alter our understanding of what the text is actually saying. Um, or the, the rapture, that's something that is unique to dispensationalism. We believe in a distinction between the rapture and the second coming. And there have been so many people who've gone to uh, Matthew 25 and, and Luke 17, they've looked at that passage about two people sleeping in bed and one's going to be taken away. There are going to be two women grinding at the mill and one's going to be taken, one's going to be left. And they think, oh, that's got to be the rapture. It's not talking about the rapture, it's talking about judgment. But people have that misunderstanding because they walk into the text with their pre-understanding, with their preconceived ideas. Yes, Andy. So... I'm saying I'm not a Christian, but we have. <laughs> <laughs> That's good. That's always a good starter, right? Yes. Um, but we have to have those presuppositions. Yep. That you have written up there. Mm-hmm. I mean, pre- presupposition number one: God exists, right? Yep. Presupposition number two: Jesus came and lived the perfect life, and et cetera, et cetera. But <clears throat> what I'm trying to say is, in order to adequately and consistently interpret scripture, you need those presuppositions as a hermeneutic. That's what I'm trying to say. Mm. That's how we interpret and how we look at God's word. Yeah, that's why I say that we should check our presuppositions rather than abandon our presuppositions because there are some really fundamental foundational presuppositions that if we abandon, we're, we're going to be without hope, we're going to be without reason, we're just going to be off in Never Neverland. And you can never abandon all presuppositions either. No, it's yeah. impossible. All right. Well, Andy, you had mentioned before about how we um, realize that the Bible isn't woodenly literal. And just as we approach the, the Bible with a, a literal interpretive lens, realizing that um, not everything should be understood literally, right? Jesus isn't literally a door like John chapter 10 says that's figurative language and we should understand it figuratively. Well, we need to recognize that there are in fact different figures of speech that are employed throughout the Bible. And it can be difficult sometimes to, um, to identify when a figure of speech is being used and if it is in fact a figure of speech versus actually being literal. How do we know that Jesus isn't a door? How do we know that that's figurative language? Uh, well, Generally, I have a yeah, yeah, dead giveaway right there. Um, generally, an expression is figurative when it is out of character with the subject discussed or contrary to fact, experience, or observation. So, if it's not on topic, if it's um, again contrary to fact, experience, or observation, then there's a pretty good likelihood that uh, it might be a figurative expression of speech. Bill Mounts, he's a, a Greek scholar. He says that a writer may convey his thought either by the use of words in their directly denotative sense, or he may choose the more pleasing path of figurative expression. But one thing must be kept clear. In either case, the literal meaning is the same. And so I want to go through, and there are dozens of different figures of speech. I want to look at six of them and just get a a taste for these different figures of speech. So last week we spent some time in Isaiah. Let's turn back to Isaiah and let's look at that text in Isaiah 55. It is a a good text. So Isaiah 55. We'll start in verse 8. Isaiah 55. Well, actually I'll go up and start at 6. It says, Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way, and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord, and he will have compassion on him, and to our God, and he will abundantly pardon. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, nor are my ways your ways, declares the Lord. Now that's relatively straightforward, right? It's pretty plain, literal speech up until this point. Well, in these following verses, 
uh, we're going to see uh, a figurative expression, one that I'm sure you're familiar with and you'll remember from junior high or high school. We're going to see a simile, right? That we're going to see a, a comparison here using like or as. So starting in verse 9, to illustrate this point further, that his thoughts are above our thoughts, his ways above our ways, it says, For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return there without watering the earth, and making it bare and sprout, and furnishing seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so my word will be which goes forth from my mouth. It will not return to me empty without accomplishing what I desire, without succeeding in the matter for which I have sent it. So he's using these illustrations, uh, looking at the rain and the snow, and um, what else did he use in there? Yeah, the heavens, and uh, looking at that as the, the height, and he's comparing that with his ways being superior to our ways. Uh, closely related to a, a simile is a metaphor, right? What's the difference between a simile and a metaphor? Simile uses like or as. A metaphor states that something is something. Yeah. Um, and I put over here the example Psalm 100, verse 3, which says, Know that the Lord is God. Uh, we are his people, not our own, and the sheep of his pasture. So that verse actually says that we are the sheep of his pasture. We're not like the sheep of his pasture. We're not as a sheep of his pasture. It says we are the sheep of his pasture. So if you've been wondering what that funky smell is, maybe that'll give you a little bit of clarity because <laughs> we are the sheep of his pasture, right? Again, obviously, this is a figure of speech um, that is using comparison uh, without the words like or as. It's comparison or, or representing uh, one thing to another. Uh, next one is personification. Personification. And this is ascribing human characteristics uh, to inanimate objects or ideas or thoughts uh, or animals. And we see that, again, back in Isaiah 55. So Isaiah 55, 12, continuing on in the same passage we were in, says, For you will go out with joy and be led forth with peace. The mountains and the hills will break forth into shouts of joy before you, and all the trees of the field will clap their hands. That's a pretty cool verse, huh? I've told Brittany before, we need to get somebody to, to paint that. And the trees clapping hands and, and mountains and hills breaking out into shouts of song. It'd be kind of cool. But that's not what it's literally trying to express, right? Again, we see another figure of speech personification that um, these inanimate objects are being described in ways that humans are often described. Next one we see, number four, <clears throat> another big word. Don't get afraid of it, though. Anthropomorphism. I don't know if I have enough room. Something like that. Anthropomorphism. So this is similar to personification um, in that we're ascribing different traits to something that it, it doesn't typically belong to. But in anthropomorphism, uh, we see human traits being ascribed to God. Human traits or characteristics or actions that are being ascribed to God. So if you'll just flip over a couple pages to Isaiah 59, we'll see an example there. Who can read Isaiah 59, 1 and 2 for us? All right, Joseph. Right. So those verses talk about God having a hand and an ear and a face. Um, and we know that God is spirit and we worship him in spirit and truth, right? John 4 and Deuteronomy 4, we can go and we can see in both the Old and New Covenant that 
God doesn't have these physical characteristics that typically humans have. This is an anthropomorphic verse, taking human characteristics and using them to explain God. And fifthly, this fifth uh, figure of speech we want to look at is hyperbole. Uh, hyperbole is intentional exaggeration. And I put on there Matthew 5, 28 and 29. That's where Jesus says, if your eye causes you to sin, pluck it out. If your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. And yet you guys all walked in here today with your, your eyes and your hands. And I don't see anybody who is really struggling on that front when I know we all should be. Um, this is hyperbole, right? This is intentional exaggeration. But what we can't do is we can't look at a text like this and say, oh, that's just hyperbolic. We, we're going to write it off altogether. No, we still need to look at what is the literal understanding. What is it that Jesus is trying to convey that he's trying to get across? He's trying to say, you need to take quick, decisive action against any sin that's in your life. So quick as if to pluck out your eye or cut off your hand. You don't just ignore it. But he uses a, a hyperbolic statement in order to get that across. A couple other verses that are often cited as being hyperbolic. Uh, Luke 2.1 says that a census went out to all of the earth. Acts 2.5 says that there were Jews living in Jerusalem from every nation under heaven. Um, those seem like they're a little bit hyperbolic, perhaps. We didn't have, you know, any Utes or um, different Indians from America living in Jerusalem. But um, we do have to be careful, especially with hyperbole, when seeking to identify hyperbole, um, because it's easy to take it too far. We could look at the flood, and people have looked at the flood and said, you know what, that's just hyperbolic. There really wasn't water that was covering every single mountain. Um, you, you don't really believe that, do you? Because, in fact, um, back here in, um, in Acts 2.5, it says that there were Jews living in Jerusalem from every single nation, and that's, that's hyperbolic. So I don't think that every mountain was actually covered. It was just every mountain in that region, every mountain that Noah was able to see. Or if we take that same approach and we apply it to uh, Romans 3.23, right? That all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That's just exaggeration, right? You don't really think everybody has sinned, do you? Or Hebrews 4.15 that says that uh, we have a, a sympathetic high priest who can sympathize with us because he's been tempted in every way as we are, yet he's without sin. If we say, oh, well, he's not truly without sin, or maybe he can't sympathize with us in all ways because he wasn't tempted in all ways. Um, people have taken hyperbole and they have completely twisted scripture. So we need to have good reasons for um, viewing scripture as using these different um, figures of speech. The last one I want to look at is irony because I like seeing irony in the Bible or sarcasm in the Bible. And because we're going to be in 2 Corinthians for a while, I put down uh, 2 Corinthians 12, 13. And there, Paul is talking, um, he's comparing himself with these super apostles we've been talking about on Sunday mornings. And um, let's see, he says, For in what respect were you treated as inferior to the rest of the churches, except that I myself did not come, I did not become a burden to you, as these super apostles did, Forgive me this wrong. Paul isn't really seeking their forgiveness. He's using irony. He's using sarcasm. And uh, that's, again, at least for me, one of the more fun and exciting figures of speech to, to see and to, to analyze and figure out, okay, well, what are they saying? When is irony being used? And once again, um, to identify these figures of speech, um, we have to understand that generally an expression is figurative when it's out of character and the subject with the subject that's being discussed, or it's contrary to fact, experience, or observation. So those are um, some of the different literary types we have in the Bible, some of the different figures of speech we have in the Bible, but we can even get a little bit more uh, minuscule than that, and we can, and we should analyze the, the words themselves of the Bible. Uh, we can look at the the etymology of each word. We don't need to understand these words or you don't have to, I don't have to know how to spell them to put them up on the board is what I'm saying. Um, but uh, etymology is just how a word is derived of about where it's 
where it's come from, um, what makes up the word. And so if you're in my uh, Sunday school class, my Mark class, um, you'll remember that recently we talked about parables. We've been going through the, the parables of Christ. And that word is a, a compound word, para meaning alongside, and bole is to, to throw. And so a parable means to, to throw alongside. And so it's when somebody takes a, a story and they throw it alongside of some kind of spiritual idea, some kind of spiritual thought, so as to uh, make it more, more clear, to make it stand out. Um, it makes it a little bit more tangible. And this is analyzing the, the etymology of that word. It's para and, and bole put together, parable. Uh, we also, in addition to just looking at the etymology of a word, we need to analyze and look at how it's used by the author that's using it in, in other areas and how different authors use it. And so with this word, um, with parable, Mark is a little bit more loose in his usage of this word than other authors. Um, so it could be, and it should be understood as one of several different figures of speech, um, usually expanded similes like we looked at, um, but it could also be different proverbial sayings. So when you're in Mark, you don't always understand the word parable in the same way. Uh, one example of this is uh, Mark 7:11, where it says that um, you say, if a man says to his father or mother, whatever I have that would have helped you, I'm going to call that Corbin so that I don't have to give it to my mother or father. This is identified as a, a parable in Mark, which is a little bit different from the parables we've been looking at, the parable of the the soils and the mustard seed, uh, it's got a, a slightly different shade to it. So we need to not just analyze, again, the, the etymology of the word, where it comes from, but how it's used by that author, how it's used from by different authors as well. And then in addition to this, another tool that we can use in, in analyzing the grammar of scripture is... Um, understanding that different words have different semantic ranges, that they mean different things at different times. They're not always used in the exact same wooden way. Um, you can talk about running down to the store. You can talk about taking a, a sprint or a marathon. Um, you can talk about your car running, which you would be using the word run in a, an operative sense. It, it operates, it runs. Um, you can talk about running for office, and talk about how the 49ers had a good run this year, but they fell short. They didn't run hard enough. Um, talk about uh, water runoff from the mountain. There are different ways that we can use the word run, right? And the same concept applies in Greek as well. And so we need to realize that. So, here we go. I have a program on my computer that uh, kind of diagrams and shows me how much of each word is used in different ways. And for the word parable, it's kind of split up into three different ways that that word is translated over into English, which doesn't even talk about the different usages, but just the ways that it's translated. Um, so about this percent of the time, it's translated as proverb, and this amount of time, it's translated as thought, and here it's, oh, here it's parable. Um, but there are different ways that different words are, are translated because they have different meanings, different semantic ranges. And we would do good to, to realize that. We would do well to realize that. Um, let's see. Just real quick. I'm a, okay, well, also, <laughs> um, different semantic ranges. Another common word that is used differently is the word law, right? When we're going throughout scripture, we can see different ways that the word law is used. Uh, it could be referring to the, the law of Moses, all 613 commands of Moses. It could be referring to the, just the 10 commandments. It could be referring, as we did earlier, to the Pentateuch, to the Torah, to those first five books. Sometimes to the, the Old Testament as a whole, the word law can be used just like a, a city ordinance. This is the law that came down from Caesar Augustus or whatever, or the, the law of Christ, a perfect law of liberty, all these different ways that this word law is used. And sometimes it can be helpful to look at synonyms for this word. It can give us a better understanding of what's being, what's being conveyed and how it is that we should understand. So let's turn to uh, the, 
longest quote-unquote chapter of the Bible, Psalm 119. Psalm 119. Let's look at verses 7 and 8 as we consider um, synonyms in this psalm. So Psalm 119 and... Maybe it's, I got the wrong passage on my notes. Maybe it's Psalm 109 that I wanted. It is not Psalm 109. I am not sure where I'm looking at. Psalm 119, 18. Uh, nope, I checked that one too. I don't know. I have it written down. So I'm just going to read off my page. I don't know where I got this from. So <laughs> you guys can figure that out as I'm reading. <laughs> uh Whatever I have here says that the law of the Lord is perfect. That's 19. That's what I thought. Psalm 119, what verse? No, no, 19. Psalm 19. 19. Oh, I went to Psalm 109, huh? 19.7. Yes, thank you. All right, Psalm 19.7. That's where we're at. So Psalm 19, verses 7 and 8. It says, the law of the Lord is perfect, restoring the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The command of the Lord is the command of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. So we see uh, that law is synonymous here with uh, testimony and with precepts and with command. All these are kind of used interchangeably, and. We would do well to look at the, the function, at the, um, how these words are used in this, this little pericope. Um, so looking at these words, law, testimony, precepts, commands, uh, what part of speech are those different words? Are those verbs or nouns or adjectives? Uh, again, we're, go we're going back to, to English class here, but it's okay because Jeremy has an English degree. So <laughs> what types of speech are, are used here. <laughs> Those are in fact nouns. And um, again, it can be kind of, it could put you to sleep sometimes, but it's good to identify different parts of speech when you're going through and looking at scripture grammatically, right? So these nouns are connected with different verbs. What are the verbs that these nouns are connected with? Good. Reviving, making, rejoicing, enlightening. Um, Those are and action verbs. Good. <laughs> um, and we could pick apart this, um, these two verses. We can see similarities in these verses. We can see that um, the, the law, that the precepts, the commands, that they belong to God, that they are his commands. Um, we can see that um, it's, it says that it is and they are, that it's in the, the present tense, that these are things that um, are in this moment belonging to the Lord, these commands, these precepts, these laws. Um, looking at those, again, boring things, talking about present tense, past tense, future tense, those are, are helpful. Um, going to Romans 8, right, talking about how we have been glorified, that's important because of grammar. Um, looking at the the who is talking and who they're talking to. If it's in first person, second person, third person, um, if it's somebody talking about themselves or talking to somebody directly or talking about somebody else over here. First uh, Corinthians 15, talking about baptism for the dead, right? That section says, why are they, third person, baptizing for the dead then? Um, because that's not something that Paul is condoning. That's not something he's talking to somebody else directly about. He's saying, these guys over here, they have this practice of baptizing for the dead. Even they know that there's a resurrection, right? So looking at these uh, kind of mundane, boring, different grammatical things can be helpful in our understanding of the Bible. So I spent a lot of time on looking at the Bible grammatically, but that's okay. I knew I was going to. So we should understand the Bible literally, contextually, grammatically, and historically. So talking about understanding the Bible historically, um, <coughs> we of course realize that the Bible is a, a real account, right? It's not a, a fictional, mythical account. There is a real history of the Bible. 
Uh, but that's not so much what we're, we're talking about when we're talking about having a historical approach to Scripture. We're talking about how we need to understand that God spoke to different people at, at different times. That he spoke to different groups of people. And when we're going through Scripture, we need to, again, realize and identify that. Who is speaking and who are they speaking to? Because that makes a, a world of difference. We don't want to take a verse that was written to, to somebody else, to some specific dude in some specific circumstance and say, oh, well, that's my life verse. I need to apply that to my life. I need to go out and do this thing uh, right away. No, we need to understand the Bible historically, that God spoke to different audiences, and he did so with different, uh, in different geographical and historical contexts. That when God was saying something, he was saying it to a certain people with a certain intent and purpose. So we can see this in the Gospels. We can see that when Luke is writing, he's not writing to a Jewish audience. He's writing to a Gentile audience. And so he'll take words that were in, uh, in Matthew or in Mark, in parallel passages, words like rabbi or hosanna, um, and he'll either omit them altogether or he will give a, a Greekified version. Um, so we see him do this with Calvary. He uses, that's the only place that Calvary is used instead of Golgotha, is in Luke as he's writing to Gentiles. He'll often uh, offer a, a parenthetical, parenthetical explanation about something that would have been understood immediately to a Jewish audience, but he's writing to the, to the Gentiles, so he offers an explanation. Uh, we see this in Acts 23.8 when he's talking about the Sadducees. And he says, they're the guys who don't believe in a resurrection. Whereas uh, Matthew, he wouldn't have to make that explanation because he's writing to the Jews. Luke isn't. Uh, Mark, he also explains Jewish tradition as he's going on. He's writing to the Romans, so it requires a little bit of further explanation. He used the, the Roman method of telling time in Mark 6.48. Uh, he'll talk about where different cities are located uh, if he references a city, he'll say, oh, this is in this greater, broader region that perhaps you guys over in, in Rome might know about. Um, so these different people writing to different contexts, um, they had a, a historical understanding. They knew the historical importance. And we need to, when we're going back and we're reading, have that same kind of historical eye when we're seeking to identify and understand and interpret what it is that is being said. That's why we can go to uh, Luke chapter 9 and Luke chapter 22, and we can see Jesus talking to his disciples and saying two different things. He'll say in Luke chapter 9, uh, don't take anything with you. Um, don't take your money bag. Don't take um, your, your purse or your staff or bread or anything else. And then chapter 22, he says, yeah, take your, your bag. Take your money belt. Uh, take your sandals. In fact, if you have two cloaks, go sell one and buy yourself a sword because you're going to need it. He's speaking in a different historical context. This is later on when persecution's coming and they need to be prepared, they need to be ready. Uh, understanding the historical context is vitally important to understanding the whole of Scripture. Um, we're not going to have time to, to really get into this, but it is important to, to know, and this kind of gets into the, the realm of talking about... Uh, see about permanent I don't know how to spell I'm sorry <laughs> permanent principles I don't know how to write either <laughs> um, versus um, customs right cultural customs and um, we can and need to seek to understand these differences they are vitally important and we do so with a, a historical context. So when we're looking at Scripture and we're seeing things like uh, foot washing or head coverings or uh, a holy kiss or communion or baptism or caring for widows or orphans, are these things that are just cultural customs? Is that just for that time? Do we not really need to practice that ourselves? Or are they permanent principles that we need to take and apply to our lives? Because if we make the, the wrong assumption, we could end up in some bad places, right? If we decided we're not going to take care of widows and orphans, we're not going to um, love our wives like 
Christ loved the church. That's, that was a cultural custom, right? That's for the Ephesians. I don't have to do that. Um, we need to be really careful how we understand Scripture. And I would venture to say that um, we're probably a lot better off treating a custom like a principle than we are treating a principle like a custom. But we can get into a mess either way if we mix those things up. And looking at the at history, the historical context can help us and, and aid us in our interpretation. We do need to be careful not to rely too much on extra-biblical history. Again, just like we looked at last week with the concentric circles, we start with the verse and we work our, our way out um, without bringing in extra-biblical information. So, um, just to... Oh, I have a, a minute or two. Um, let's see. So as a... I'll just throw in... Yeah, go ahead. While you're gathering your thoughts. Uh, the, the cultural custom versus permanent principle, like one of the main places where people really mess up is with gender roles. Yes. Saying that, well, Paul was just saying that women shouldn't be teachers in, in the church or couldn't be elders in the church because that was just his time. Mm-hmm. And... Uh, there are some more extreme examples than that. That's a pretty widespread one. Yep. Yeah, it's really... Sexual immorality. Yep. Sexual immorality. Yep. Yeah, because mm-hmm. yeah, again, we, we live in 2023, right? And um, these things that were written to a completely different culture, so of course God doesn't want gay people to be sad for the rest of their lives. He wants them to be happy too. Uh, it's so easy to, to take and twist scripture if you don't put these things in their proper space, realizing what is a principle versus what is a custom. Uh, I was going to address Jeremiah 29, which is an awesome passage, but that chapter tells, the, tells Israel to build houses, to plant gardens, to take wives. These sound like great things, right? Except for they're in Babylon. He's telling them, you guys are going to be there for a while, so you guys need to get comfortable. Build houses there, because you're going to be there for a long time. Uh, going on to the next chapter, we see that God promises you're going to be restored. Yeah, you're going to be there for a long time. You build your houses, but I will restore you. And then the following chapter after that, in Jeremiah 31, he says there's going to be a new covenant. Um, that Things are going to get way better for you. Not only are you going to leave Babylon, but you're going to have the, the indwelling Holy Spirit. You're going to have uh, a a knowledge of who I am and uh, nobody's going to have to teach you. So understanding those things in light of God's timeline, Jeremy, a few weeks ago, he drew out God's timeline for us. If we understand where we are in God's timeline when we're in the Bible, if we have a historical interpretation of what's going on, who he's talking to, what he's saying to them, um, that's going to aid us tremendously in our Bible study, our Bible interpretation. So, Jeremy really wants to say something. No? Okay. <laughs> All right. To summarize, um, we talked about verbal plenary inspiration, right? That all the words of God are inspired. Not just the words themselves, but the, the parts of speech, the, the order that they're given to us in. Those things are all vitally important. Um, there is a difference in... Uh, different literary styles. We need to acknowledge that and um, realize that God spoke differently in different ways, but we still need to interpret those literally. Um, There are different types of speech, including figurative language, different sentence structure, word order, word form. All this is purposeful and it can and it should be analyzed and, and studied for us to come to a proper interpretation of what the Bible says. Um, God spoke to different people in in different times, different contexts. We need to especially note the author and the recipients. That's going to aid us a lot in our Bible study interpretation. There is a difference between principles and customs, and we must keep God's timeline in mind when we're looking at his text. We have a minute or so if you have any thoughts or questions. So back to permanent principles versus cultural customs. Yeah. How do you discern the difference between them? Yes. Because some, I mean, it does talk a lot about cultural customs, obviously, specifically with the Hebrew nation. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, they were, I think, 
think Paul, especially as he traveled through Asia and Rome, I presume, there were all kinds of wicked things going on around him all the time. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's not always easy, and again, it's not always agreed upon, just like uh, interpretation isn't always agreed upon. But we have to remember that we're not just taking this in, in isolation. We're, this is our, our hermeneutic altogether. We want to understand it literally, contextually, grammatically, historically. So oftentimes we can get clues from the, the language, from the grammar. We can certainly get clues from the context. Um, and we we do work our, our way out when we're working out in those concentric circles. So we're not just isolating that one verse, that one passage. We do consider what's, um, what's said in other places, especially what's said later. Remember, we talked about progressive revelation and how there's more things that come on later. So going back to cessationalism, the fact that we uh, don't think that we should come here and, and speak in tongues or we should expect somebody to uh, place hands on Marshall and heal him from his sickness. Um, because later on in scripture, we see that fading away. We see Timothy um, told, take some wine for your stomach, not being healed. We see Paul leaving his friends um, sick without healing them because it seems as if, um, from my perspective, these gifts are ceasing, they're fading. And we get that clue from progressive revelation from looking at what's written later on. So not just taking that one thing in isolation, but um, using our, our whole hermeneutic to approach those difficult topics. All right, let's pray. God, we thank you again for your word. We pray that you would give us wisdom in uh, handling it and uh, pray that we would get home safely tonight. I pray this in your name, amen. amen. I didn't forget to tell you, I brought-